Amen. So, uh, I began talking with Brother Kelby Thursday, Friday, um, and asked him if he was going to be able to get out of the frozen tundra that is North Mississippi. Uh, he said he didn't know. I said, on Friday, I said, well, guess what? Then I'm going to be ready. So, I started uh, thinking on sermons, and then yesterday, he's like, I just don't know if we're going to be able to make it out. And I said, I've got it. He said, I'm going to, I'll try. I said, you're not going to be able to because those roads up there are just still covered. Um, luckily today, I think we're going to be getting out of freezing here shortly, maybe, and maybe they'll get a little thaw. So, But I thought about what I wanted to bring to our church, and I think um, going into this new year, I think one thing that uh, has kind of been on my heart is just the hope and assurance that we have as people who are in Christ, as, as a church, a local church, gathered together as a body, um, and in Christ. What hope and assurances do we have through Scripture? And uh, I like what John Flavel, he's one, one of my favorite Puritans, what he said about uh, the church. He said, oh, be not too quick to bury the church before she is dead. And we, as a local body... Um, Though sometimes in our circumstances of life, we uh, may feel like we're run over and beaten up and left in a ditch. We're not dead yet, right? And I started thinking about how, how we do church and how our local assembly does church. We do some things that have been done for centuries. And I look around and I see other people saying, oh, we want to redefine how, how we do church, how we how we do life in church, and I, and I started thinking about this Flavel quote, and I said, wait a second, maybe we need to get back to how it should be, right? But I want to begin this week by asking us a question that I, I want us all to keep in mind throughout the rest of the sermon. Do you love your church? Do you love this local body that you're a part of, this, this assembly of saints that we're gathered together with? I've begun to see... Um, as I've read in scripture, Jesus loved the church. John writes and he loves the church. It seems that every writer of scripture loves the church. And we have a, maybe a society that tries to say they don't love the church. And I, my, my wife in Sunday school, she brought up the, the excellent thing that Kelby brought up a few weeks ago. That we really can't say we love Jesus and say we hate the church because we're the bride of Christ. So if you say you love Jesus and you say I hate the church, you're saying it'd be like telling me, Jason, I love you, but I just can't stand Casey. Most of the time, um, if I can't catch myself, that may require a uh, little bit of a, a red part of their face when they talk about my wife like that, if you know what I'm saying. But... This is part of what Christ left us was this. Gathering together in our local assembly. And as we talked about in Sunday school, to answer questions. Answer the questions of life. But I want to get into the text that we're going to be using this morning. It's 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. 
now hear the infallible, inspired Word of God. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father, we thank, thank you for your Word. We thank you that it's infallible, inerrant. It stands the test of time. It is the most reliable document that we have in history. And we can count on what it says as what you have said to us. Open our hearts and our minds to hear it, to take it in, to understand it. And God, help us to see through what we preach here, the reassurance and hope that we have as people in this church. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So John Stott, he points out in his commentary about this uh, group of texts he says that John here seems to if, if you read first John if you start at one you just keep reading you see John really hammering false teachers and uh, false beliefs um, and you see him promoting a, a right believing uh, a, a, a how true believers in local churches should be believing about their God and about how things are, are written in Scripture. But right here, he takes a break. And he, he speaks directly to these true believers in these local churches to give them some reassurance and hope. And I pray that what we do here as we go through that, that we leave here with that same reassurance, that same hope, that same joy that can be found only in Christ, right? I believe uh, John knows that there are readers of his uh, epistle that aren't walking in darkness like these false prophets. And they need to be spoken to too, right? And he's given them a powerful encouragement. See, um, now the counterfeit teachers and the false converts still need to take notice though because their false assurances aren't going to stand. But these true assurances from God will stand. And instead of going phrase by phrase through these verses, I need... I think we need to look at these verses just a little differently um, because John is addressing, if you hear his, his address, he's addressing three different groups of people. He says children, he says fathers, and then he says young men. Now, there's been some, a lot of speculation about this um, that is referring to the age of people in the church. Um, after some study, I'm not so sure that that's exactly where we're at with that. Because if you look at the terms that he uses, you begin to see who he's actually talking to. John is using terms that I think describe members of a church body. Um, and most commentators agree with that. And John's talking about the makeup of a local assembly, the makeup of a local church. And the body of Christ in the local church is really made up of these types of people. And it, it's not just males. I know it says children, fathers, young men, 
And it's not just talking about the boys. It's talking about the girls too, okay? So let's take this into account. So based on what John's saying here, what's the makeup of the, of the body of a church? He first says children. Now, we got a lot of kids in here. We got some babies, and I always say I love children and babies in church because it shows that the church is alive, and we can hear it, and we can smell it, and we can see it running around, right? And that's, I love that. Of course, I, love, I like kids. But children, this is really all of us in this church who are in Christ. This goes from brand new Christians to those who have been in Christ for many years. These children, and as we go through what John says to the, this, this category, this group of people, um, we're going to see that anyone who is in Christ in our church um, will fall in this category. Then we see fathers. Now, this is the group of people who have been in church for many years and have wisdom. These are true Christians who have held strong to the faith. Um, they've been through enough life to be, that we can be sure that they're very helpful in our churches. And they've, they've lived more life maybe than some of us have. And then you have young men. Now, for those fathers in the church right now, Guess what? You also fall into this category. Young men is, is that committed group that's living, that's vibrant, that's strong in Christ in our church. Um, people who are immersed in their sanctification, seeking God daily with the disciplines, right? Um, you're raising or fighting for family uh, to, to also serve Christ, whether you're a parent or a grandparent. Um, you may be going through some sort of suffering or persecution at some point in your life, right? And, and most of the true active membership of any church falls into this category of young men. So, since we have kind of outlined the context of, of the, the audience, of like the categories who he's talking to, let's look at what he says to them and what it means for us. And I want us to understand something here. John is meaning this entire text as an encouragement, as something to give us hope and joy in our lives as Christians. And he's trying to reassure the readers of this who they are in Christ, who we are. We talked in Sunday school this morning about the big question the church should answer, and the, one of the big questions I think church should answer is, who am I? I don't need to tell myself who I am. I need Scripture to tell me who I am. I need Christ to tell me who I am, right? That's who I need to know about. And if I listen to Christ about who I am, guess what I understand? I'm completely incapable. But Christ within me is capable, right? So, he doesn't tell them what they've got to do to fit in or what they have to act like, look like, be like to fit in. He tells them what's true of them. And I think that's a reassurance that we need this morning. So, what does John say about these different groups of people? 
First, he talks to the children. One of the main things he says to the children in this text is this. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And that is a factual description of every single member of the body of Christ. Every person in Christ in this building. It is absolutely 100% true of you that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And it was a promise that was prophesied to the children of Israel. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This isn't the type of forgiveness that we forgive with. Our forgiveness comes, and it's sincere. But our memory remains, right? We remember those things a lot of times, even though we forgive. This is a full forgiveness, a full pardon for your sins. Why? Because the price was paid. Jesus took the full wrath for you. He took it all. And now when you repent and trust in Christ, you're forgiven on a level that surpasses anything that you could actually comprehend or understand. Because you can't forgive in that way. But you know who can? The God of all the universe. How? Upon the merits of Jesus Christ himself. That's how. If this forgiveness was all that God ever did for us, it would still be more than we would ever deserve in our life. Yet, it's, it goes so much deeper than that. Because we get something even better through Christ. We could be a forgiven group of people that are called Christians. That come to church and gather and we could be the happiest group of people in the world still. But John tells us another thing that's true of the children. He said, you know the Father. And it's awesome that we know the God of all the universe through Scripture and what He has told us. But let's look at the way He puts it. He says, not that you know God. He says, we know the Father. John 1, 12-13 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So not only are we forgiven, but through Christ, we are actually made sons and daughters. 
We are his children. He has gone so much farther than just forgiving our sin. And forgiving our sin would have been enough for us, I promise you that. But he says, I'm not just going to forgive you, I'm going to call you son, and I'm going to call you daughter, and I'm adopting you into my family. If we're in Christ, we are his children. We could go home right now and be completely fulfilled with just that thought. It's an amazing thing to be adopted into the family of the God of all the universe and get to call him Father. What a great encouragement. Then he begins to talk to, as well, a second group in the body of Christ. Fathers. I think y'all are going to like the way I describe this. This is the seasoned saint. The people who are older in our churches are an asset, not just a help. They are a great asset that, encourage, <laughs> that encourages us. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm sorry. Um, and I believe... I've been in this. I've been in this um, this church community that it seems wants to throw that asset away, and I think that's an absolute shame. That a church would des de desire to show a young face and throw away one of the most wonderful assets we have in Christendom. We should desire those people in our church. And it's disgusting to me. Uh, a couple years ago, I don't know if you guys heard the story. There was a Baptist church, I believe it was in Florida, that sent a letter to every member of their church over 50 and said, on such and such a date, we would ask that you would no longer come to our church, go to this sister church from now on, because we're trying to show a younger face in our, in our church. When I heard that on a podcast, I, I could have thrown my phone out a window. Because at that time, I was in a church that needed those people to help all of the young ones to learn more, to, to be more grounded, to have some advice on how, to, how do I get through this in my life? How do I get through this? Well, it would have been nice to have a seasoned Christian to say, you know what, I went through the same thing. Listen to what happened. So, needless to say, I, I, I was not very happy that any church would say that to, to people who were some of the most important people in the church. We should desire those in our church with, with great knowledge like that. John outlines why that's true and what he says of that's true of, of the fathers of the church. He says, you know him who is from the beginning. And that sounds like it's a, a good way, a really powerful way of say, just saying you know God. Well, sort of, but I think it's deeper than that. I think it's substantially more profound than that. First, let's look at the theological implications of this. What, what, is, what are we actually saying here when we say that 
a group of people in our church knows him who's from the beginning. Who is actually from the beginning? We need to discuss here who the one true God is. Because there is only one. And we don't get to decide who he is or how he's made up. Our God is one in essence, three in persons. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Existing eternally, unchanging for all time, right? So what John really is saying here, what, what's he trying to say? Let's look at Malachi 3.6. It says, listen to what God says. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So those who have been in the faith longer understand something so important about God. That they serve an unchanging, faithful God. In all of his three persons, he is faithful. God as creator and father has made and sustains this world. He holds it all together. If he ever let go, what would happen? It would fly into oblivion. He's holding all of it. He's forever holy. This is the God of the covenant with the people of his choosing, right? The God of the covenant of grace that we are living in, thanks to Jesus Christ, right? And then we see God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is forever a Savior to those who are in him. Those who have been in the faith for a while started out one way, with Christ. And they live every day with him. They know him as wonderful, faithful, unchanging Savior. They know his doctrine. They truly have lived a life in him. They know the power and the help of the third person as well. That God the Holy Spirit has been at work in their lives. His sanctifying power has changed who they are for years. Like foundationally, right? They've been constantly directed into the word of God by him is part of who they are. Mostly they've seen Christ clearly revealed by the Holy Spirit. We need people like that in our churches. So as an encouragement to those people in our church, you know him. You've known him for so long. And we love hearing about it. We need that in our churches, not fun new games to play. Not lights and smoke machines. We need grounded, seasoned saints who say, I've served him for this many years and he's never changed. He's always been faithful. And I'm so glad that we have that here. Churches that push out these kind of people and want a hip, young demographic, are throwing away one of their most important assets. So then we come to the third group. And I pray that we all strive to be in this group, or are in this group, and that's young men. Remember those who I said are committed or living a life of Christian, a, 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 a life in Christ that is active and, and, and powerful. John says one thing of them two times. 
He says it twice. Therefore, it must be pretty important, right? He says, you have overcome the evil one. Well, who's the evil one? According to this original text, it's easy. It's Satan. Who is Satan? He is the deceiver. What do we need to overcome? What are Satan's motives? What was his original intent in the garden? He wanted to first convince Adam and Eve that they didn't have to follow God's word and what he said, right? And secondly, he wanted them to desire to commit the same sin he committed, right? To elevate themselves above or even equal to God. Listen to his craftiness in Genesis 3. I'm looking forward to a few weeks when we actually get into Genesis 3 and, and the sermon series. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what'd they do? Chomp, chomp, right? Why? Because it looked good, and man, I sure would like to have that knowledge. The young man in Christ lives a life fighting and defeating Satan in these areas, these particular areas. First, he's heeded the call of the gospel, the very word of Christ preached. He's repented and trusted in Christ. That's the first step. That's the first step for any of us. You can't stumble your way into Christianity and just say, like, ah, I, I believe it now. No, you must repent and trust in Christ for your salvation. Otherwise, is your heart really changed? Secondly, no true Christian would ever think that they are like God, that they are little gods equal to or equal with God. No true Christian would ever think that. Now, uh, during the late 80s, early 90s, that actual doctrine began, began to be prevalent on things like TBN, of your little gods, little G gods. You want to know what that doctrine is? Garbage. You are not little gods. God says in his word very clearly throughout many of his books, I am God and there is no other. How could we sit and think that we are like God, equal to God, equal with God, anything like Him, when we look and realize who we have been, right? The young man realizes his own sinfulness. He sees that he is definitely not God and the devil has been overcome in his life because of that. The devil's lies don't work in that way. He looks and sees his utter in incapability of being free from sin. 
And he looks at the one who was sinless, who took his sin upon himself, and says, I'll rely on him, on Christ. What else does he say? He says, you are strong. Now, this could lead us to some, maybe some uh, arrogance, right, if we, if we don't read the rest of it. How does it say that we are strong? It says, the word of God abides in you. What gives the young man strength? The very word of the living God at work in his life. Why, is, why do we promote so much daily Bible reading and, and, and Bible study and, 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 and being in the word? Why? You have no strength without it. That's why. Let's look at, a little closer at this because John just doesn't pull this idea out of thin air. Okay, he's not just writing some brand new idea that he's uh, fleshed out himself. How does he know that God's word abiding in us gives us strength? Because he's heard that taught. Probably by Christ. Psalm 119, 9 through 16 says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart. I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me all your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The young man keeps his strength. He keeps his way. He keeps his walk by the word of God alone. That's where all of our strength comes from. I like how Spurgeon says it in the Treasury of David. On page 514, he says, Young man, the Bible must be your chart, and you must exercise great watchfulness that your way may be according to its directions. You must take heed to your daily life as well as study your Bible, and you must study your Bible that you may take heed to your daily life. With the greatest care, a man will go astray if his map misleads him. But the most accurate map, he will still lose his road if he does not take heed to it. The narrow way was never hit upon by chance. Neither did any heedless man ever lead a holy life. So what's he saying there? We need a good map. But if we ignore what the map says and we ignore the map, we'll still get lost. We have the best map ever. The greatest map ever given to man is the word of God. Why? Because it leads us to one place to Jesus Christ himself, to Calvary, to what he has done for us. And that's where we all need to go. And because of that, we get to take that trip into eternity with him forever. The young man is the Christian who is fighting the good fight of faith. But we lose that fight without the word. 
And what John is trying to do here is he's trying to assure the young man that he is only strong if he stays in God's word. And I think we should understand something. John stops the entire focus of his book of destroying false teaching and counterfeit preachers and fake converts. He does this to say important things to the loyal members of the local church. To faithful Christians living lives that they desire to be pleasing to God. Living lives that desire to bring glory to God. He stops everything to tell them these wonderful things about themselves. He stops to tell them, first of all, your sins are forgiven in Christ. Church, that must be the basis of our thoughts, the basis of our prayers, the basis of our lives, is that through Christ alone, we have forgiveness of sins. He has done the work to save us. We must rely on His work. We must trust in His work because my work to eliminate sin in my life will not work. Only His work will do the job. Secondly, He tells them something even more beautiful, that you are sons and daughters of the Father. That we are now adopted into the family of God. That we are made sons and daughters through the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. And we can live as sons and daughters do. I like what Tim Keller said. He said, there is no one who would wake a king up at 3 a.m. in the morning for a glass of water except a child. And we are children of the one true God. And we can approach him at 3 in the morning and he will hear us. Thirdly, he's telling them, you have a God who is unchanging. What he has said in his word is true. Who he has been throughout all eternity, he still is. He is still holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-capable. He's not going to change. He's not going to suddenly change his mind and say, you know what, you're out of the family, get out. No, we have assurance in Jesus Christ through his precious blood that was shed for us on Calvary, that we are never cast out. Fourthly, he says, and I think this is an assurance maybe that we don't hear enough, you were not fooled by Satan's deceptions. You could have believed his lie that you can't trust the word of God. You could believe his lie that you can be just like him. You can be a little God. But you didn't believe that. You trusted in the one true God, and Christ has made a way for you. Fifthly, he says, you are strong in the strength of Jesus Christ. Strong in his strength alone. We have no strength on our own to live this life, this Christian life. We think we do sometimes, I think. Sometimes I, I have this uh, Superman mentality where I can get through all these things on my own. And then I start to look around and I start to think, you know what? I really can't. I can't get through this alone. But I have Christ. I have the strength of Christ living in me. And lastly, he tells them this wonderful hope and assurance. That's my son doing that. I'm absolutely 100%. It's yours? Is it? 
I was like, please tell me they don't have a plastic hammer in there because my son loves to hit everything with a plastic hammer. He'll say, I fixed it. and puts holes in walls. So, lastly, take this assurance. You have the Word of God. It is in your hands right now. If you have a Bible in your lap, if you've got a phone with an app, you have the Word of God. Live in that. Trust that. What it says, that's true. The world will tell you all kinds of other stuff. And what's the first thing they try to attack? God's Word. Why? Because it's the truth. You'll hear all kinds of other voices telling you all kinds of other things in your life. There's one thing that's true. His Word. Trust His Word. Listen to His Word. Believe what He has said. Why? It's the truth. It's the strength that we have. So we know that in the worst situation, I can look at His Word and said, all things work together for the good of those who love God and called according to His purpose. I can look at at my situations and where I am in life and I can say, you know what? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. In life, we're going to face struggle. We're going to face suffering. God will bring us to suffering. And we have a hope in his word. We have hope in Jesus Christ. And we can rely on him more than our next breath. So, in saying all of that, all these things that John was saying to this local church he was writing to, can I tell you something? Everything John said to them is true of them, is true of you too. If you are in Christ, these things are true of you. Believe that. Why? Because out of all these things, did you notice there was not anything that said, depend on yourself, your ability, your power, what you can do, and you'll be all right. There was not once in here that says, trust your heart, follow your feelings. Not once. Why? Because it's outside of you. It's all of Christ, all of God, from beginning to end. Your walk with Him is all of Christ. And all of these things that are true about you, just point to the fact that they're true about Him. And He has blessed you to be His child. And that is a wonderful, powerful, amazing truth that we can live in. Amen? Let's pray.